So hello and welcome to this Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jasani. Today I'm very pleased to welcome back Dan Chan to the podcast. Just to remind you, Dan is a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care and head of the ECC service here at the Queen Mother Hospital for Animals. Dan is also a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Nutrition and provides the hospital with a clinical nutrition service. But today we're actually going to be talking about healthcare-associated infections. And Dan has a particular interest in this, both from the point of view of critical care patients and ICU infection rates, and also in the wider hospital setting. And Dan is a member of the hospital's infection control committee. So Dan, this is actually a topic that you suggested to me, and it's obviously something that is very important and very current, so thanks for the suggestion. Um, as always, there's really a lot that we could cover here, and I guess what I'm hoping to do as usual is to give the listeners kind of a broad overview of the issues and to try and highlight as many of the key points as possible in the time that we have. And I guess the place I wanted to start with was some terminology and definitions. Um, people may be aware of this distinction between community-acquired and healthcare-associated infections. So. I wanted you, if possible, to please explain the difference, but I also wanted to try and clarify the terminology because people may have heard of hospital-acquired infections, they may have heard of nosocomial infections, and I've decided to call this podcast Healthcare-Associated Infections for a reason that you're probably about to tell me, but um, I just wondered if you could clarify what the distinction is and also what kind of terminology should we be using. Yeah, I think that, that the um, I think with any terminology, it, it evolves as we understand a bit more about the problem. So I think most people will have heard of nosocomial infections, and and that's the the closest um, sort of uh, equivalent would be the hospital acquired infection. Now, the term nosocomial and hospital acquired is to imply that the infection was acquired during a hospitalization. And if you look at most definitions of hospital-acquired infection, it, it specifically looks at the acquisition of a new infection that was not believed to be present at presentation to the hospital. Now, there are a couple of things that we now understand better about the problem of these new infections. One is that it can't be just about the patients that are acquired during hospitalization. It also, the, the term hospital acquire almost made it sound like it was just the locality, like the mere presence of a patient in the four walls of a hospital made it them likely to or, or possibly get an infection. And so the term is a bit limiting, but it's useful in some in, in some. Uh, Respects because it defines a period or a situation where we're interested in. Now, what has changed is our recognition that what about the outpatients that they come in for the clinic for maybe a couple of hours? Could they potentially acquire? Because what if they have some invasive procedure, a blood draw, um, a scan? Could they somehow get a infection or infectious agent into them? And in the human field, now there's an even bigger scope because a lot of health care is being administered outside of hospitals. So community centers, people, patients' homes. And so it's trying to capture 
healthcare associated, I mean, any activity at which a patient is receiving medical care, however minor that may be. And so I think that the trend, in, at least in human medicine, is to call it healthcare acquired to encompass any intervention that's medical in nature and seeing if, if those events is what's um, sort of increasing the risk of getting an infection. So that's where we are. In terms of what veterinary medicine should do, I don't know, because we always play catch-up. And I think it's more important that we use, we raise the issue um, rather than worry about are we calling it technically correct. Um, because one of the things that we see, if we just look at the patients that were hospitalized, we're not looking at those that came in and out of the hospital. And we know if you have a very contagious disease like kennel cough, well, an outpatient could be completely at risk of acquiring that, but it wouldn't be logged at a hospital acquire mm. because the definition says there has to be hospitalized. So, so hospital acquired is sort of a subset of healthcare associated. Absolutely. I, yeah, that's a really way, good way to look at it is those that actually are in the hospital facility. But one thing that we probably should go away from is this concept that it's just the environment. It's not the locality. It's actually what happens within the hospital that raises the risk. So um, I guess one thing that I'm not entirely clear on then is because traditionally I think we used to say with hospital-acquired or nosocomial that there was this kind of cutoff that I think was consensus at 48 hours and you were in the hospital for 48 hours and then if you had a new onset infection, it was classified as hospital acquired. If we're now shifting to say, well, actually, it could be just associated with an episode of healthcare, then does that time period become irrelevant to the discussion then? Or, or, or is saying in the context of patients that are actually hospitalized, we still have this time frame in mind? I mean, I guess as I'm asking you the question, I'm sort of thinking maybe this is all a bit pedantic and actually you're, the broader principle of was it associated with healthcare is the issue, but is, is there any space for this time of hospitalization left? Or? Yeah, it really depends on what you're looking at because uh, there are two issues actually with this time frame. So the 48 hours, it was meant to capture the incubation period for most infectious agents, usually bacterial, so that a patient that comes in contact with a bacterial agent, if it converts from a colonization where there's no infection, where they're just the, the bacteria is on them, if they were to develop an infection, it takes about 48 hours. So that is to define whether or not the infection was developing at the time. So if you develop a, a fever at 24, there's a possibility that the infection was already present before they came mm. and is just manifesting whilst in the hospital. So the, the purpose of having this 48 hours is just to try to separate community acquire, which you alluded to, which is an infection that is sort of acquired naturally versus one that is healthcare associated. Now, why is that even important? Mm. I think that's because of the potential that the acquired infection within the hospital might be one that already is resistant to various antibiotics, where in the community is less likely to occur naturally, and it tends to develop the, the, this resistance pattern with the use of antimicrobials. Because so, that, was, that was kind of my next thing, really. Was so we're talking about terminology definition, but basically, you know, what is all the fuss about? You know, why do we, why do we even care? Um, and I guess you're saying that because it has potential implications for our ability to treat yeah. and I mean, I think, severity. Absolutely. So that one of the things that I think is important is, so what's the big deal? One is 
if you put the issue on the table as is patient safety, a patient undergoing medical care should not be a greater risk to acquire a new problem. So that's one uh, thing that we need to, to establish. The second is how serious is that infection going to be? Mm. If you are sick, you're immunocompromised, that means your ability to fight off an infection is going to be compromised. And if you're now being exposed to superbugs where they're already resistant to various antimicrobials, that becomes a bigger issue. Um, we see things in the press about bacterial strains that are resistant to every known antimicrobial, and we don't know what's next, what can we do for this patient. And I think that that is becoming more and more serious every day, and I think that the European Union, the World Health Organization, have raised alarm bells because this is the situation now. What about 10 years from now? We will run out of antimicrobials. And so it there, there are two issues related to this. Is it community? Is it hospital choir? Mm. Because of the seriousness of the infection. Okay, and um, we'll touch a little bit later on um, what people in practice could maybe do and also monitoring and stuff. But I guess something else that I know that you're, you're kind of pretty hot on and, and we like to pay attention to is, um, you know, evidence, essentially. So I wondered if you could tell us, do we have any information on the incidence of... I think for this podcast, we're just going to call them healthcare-associated. Um, so do we have any information on the incidence of these infections in practice? And also, do we know what kind of organisms are involved, what kind of sites of infection we're concerned about? I guess, um, you know, you and I, I think we, we often, if someone started to talk to us about these infections, we sort of, our mind goes to agents and places in the body. But I guess for the listeners who may be less familiar with these problems, if you could just kind of summarize the most common things that people see, that would be great. Yeah, so one of the things that I, I guess it's um, uh, important to to like realize when we're dealing with these hospital-acquired infections is, are we just borrowing information from the human field or do we know if there's any difference? So there are few pieces of true evidence out mm-hmm. there. A lot of it are very isolated pockets where one hospital, usually an uh, academic institution, a teaching hospital, will report on their experience with trying to quantify it. But it's very non-standardized. So we're not using the same benchmark from place to place. So there's a very few pieces. There's one piece of work that's come out recently where it's probably the most robust of all. It's a multi-institutional um, study where they prospectively evaluated patients and every institution had to go for 12 weeks of close scrutiny of every patient that actually involved the intensive care unit. So they tried to pick a population where the risk was highest. Now, knowing this, that means that it can't be completely translated to general practice Mm -hmm. where the population is very different. So one of the things that they're trying to say is hospitalized patients in intensive care, let's follow them really closely and let's see. So they, they have some... Uh, incident rates that are, are important to keep in mind because if you look at what's what's the standard in, in human hospitals and th- it could be about 10%. So out of every 100 days of hospital operating days, they're looking about 10 patients becoming affected by what would be qual- healthcare-acquired infection. 
looking at the veterinary data, the spread is anywhere from 4% to 38%. Mm. And there, there are a couple things to keep in mind is that how do you define this infection? Because it's not solely a culture that's positive. So if you make a clinical decision that you thought was due to an infection, even if you didn't culture, you, you, you capture that as a healthcare-acquired infection. So, for example, something that we, you and I see every day is a, a patient that develops an unexpected fever. Mm. And the first thing we look for is what sites could be affected. Could it be a catheter? And we look at the catheter, and it says, mm, this one doesn't look as good. It's still working, but there's a little bit of swelling. We take that catheter out. We may or may not culture it. Because if there's no discharge, we might not. But that should be counted as a healthcare-acquired infection, even though we can improve the infection. But that's not really practical. We acted as if it was, so therefore we should count it as is. Now, you, you ask about what are we concerned about. Well, there, there are various categories. The most common that, that's been shown in veterinary practice is urinary catheter-related infections. So many patients are catheterized for a variety of reasons. So the block cats, you have patients with lower motor neuron disease that can't void as well. We have animals that are immobile. Um, when we place a urinary catheter, we, the first thing we do is we circumvent all the body defenses against mm-hmm. infection. And then we subject them to um, a situation where there could be flow up the urethra as opposed to just down, and therefore we increase the risk. So that's one major area. Any intervention, um, so blood draws, so catheter-related is another big category. Respiratory infections, so any animal that has an anesthetic um, or surgical uh, procedure those are the areas, so surgical site and, and respiratory. So it's sort of the, the, the major right. four. And, and is it fair to say that um, in terms of sites or routes of infection, then those sort of sites are, are the most common routes. But then when we're looking at specific bacteria, focus on bacteria, um, and, and even beyond that, their kind of sensitivities and stuff, that we do need to take quite an individual hospital-focused approach to these things rather than trying to extrapolate the information of a hospital in another country, for example, or do you feel there is some value? So things like a multi-institutional study, is it rational to use the results of that study in, in our individual hospital, even though we weren't involved in that? Or, you know, do you mean, is it, is it possible to kind of Yeah, I think one of the things that is, because we have so much, so little data, yeah. one of the things that was important is the process. How do you capture, how do you define, how do you look for the problem? rather than worry about which agents. I think you're right. The, the, what's growing or what's colonized in a hospital setting has to be very much uh, individualized. So I think every institution needs to keep track of the infections that have been classified as healthcare-associated and get to know them and know their pattern of resistance. Because I, I think that nobody's actually coming up with protocols like just treat all patients with this antibiotic protocol, and if it's a hospital acquire or healthcare acquire, treat this way because that's not feasible. Yeah. It has to be a process where somebody takes stock of what's the problem in that hospital and then create protocols to addressing those issues. 
So I think that's very important. What we learned from this study is it can be done, we can get the data, and then we can track our progress against that. So we got a baseline, at least, of what the problem is, and then make measures to reduce them. Okay, and um, <clears throat> this sounds like a weird question in a way, but interesting, we were talking about it recently in the journal club. Um, what about community acquired? We're not really focusing on that today, but can we extrapolate community acquired information across the world? Or Because I think we were talking in a journal club that, that you weren't there um, about um, community acquired infections in a population of dogs, and we were kind of like, well, can we really extrapolate what happens in Texas, USA? to the southeast of the United Kingdom in terms of community acquired? Is that a really nonsensical question? No, absolutely. I think whenever you're talking about infectious agents, um, you do have to keep in mind what is the likelihood of that infectious agents. Now, certain sites for, like for saying, respiratory infections, they don't vary as much. So the, the number of organisms that are likely to be causing that. You know, coliforms are well represented no matter where you are in the world mm. for the majority of infections. You know, I think one geographical difference that I can appreciate is, for example, tetanus. Tetanus, the incidence in the UK and Europe are higher than reported elsewhere in the world. Uh, I think that that's very interesting. They talk about the organism in the soil more in Europe than than in other parts of the world, which might explain the differences. But that's just an extreme extreme example of the differences in sort of the microflora mm. uh, in the environment. Um, again, so the site of infection, you know, respiratory versus urinary tract infection versus um, you know pneumonias, it, they, these they might have slight differences. By and large, they they don't vary that much. Okay. Um, and I guess the other question is that, as you said already, already, that a lot of the data that we do have, insofar as we have some, is is published from referral institutions. And, you know, we're going to come on to talk about measures that people can take to try and reduce the incidence of healthcare-associated infections. But what I wondered was, do we have any data at all from general practice, if you like, in terms of the incidence of these infections and whether the types of infections, I mean, we said that they're probably similar, but do we have any data at all from non-referral institutions? Or? No, I think that that data is very hard to, if it's being collected, it's not being shared. Uh, one of the things that it's probably true is the risk is much lower in practices because one of the major risk factors for acquiring infection is the length of hospitalization. And I think that's a, a very important sort of parameter to keep track of. So even in these academic multi-center institutions, the average hospitalization was three days. And that's sort of the breaking point where the risk really jumps. Mm. If you look at the length of hospitalization in general practice, although we don't have hard numbers, and I think that there are sort of efforts now to try to collate that, the average hospitalization is not longer than three days. And so their risk is already lower. And again, the, the data that I shared where the rate of infection could be anywhere from 4 to 38% are in ICUs where the number of interventions are higher, there are sicker patients, so their risk is the highest. If you, in the same institutions, if you looked at their spay clinics, for example, the rates of infection will probably be much lower given the fact that most of them are done almost in the same day mm. and discharged. So the risk of those patients in the same hospital, the same people delivering the care, is already different. So 
the data we do have would suggest that in general practice it might be lower. And um, in the context of length of hospitalization then, I mean, we know and we've discussed in other situations um, that referral institutions potentially have variable mean periods of hospitalization for the same disease processes even and you know, some of that might be related to costs involved and all that kind of stuff. But I guess what I was wondering when you were saying what you were saying was should we be factoring in, so people like us, should we be factoring in this risk of hospital-acquired infection as something that might incentivize us to actually discharge patients sooner? You know, if we're kind of like, well, maybe they can go today, maybe they can go tomorrow. Is it at that level of severity that we should actually be saying, you know what, why are you still here? Go home, it's safer for you, or, or not? Oh, well, I, the most interesting bit of information that makes me think that that is a, that's an issue that we probably should be have, uh, talking about it, is that when they created these checklists to reduce hospital or healthcare-associated infections, the checklist focuses on the need for certain procedures. Or, for example, every day the question is asked, does this patient need this catheter? Hmm. Uh, I think we should no longer be, you know, once we place a catheter and we don't need it, I'll just keep it in, flush it in case we need it. I think we should change that paradigm and say, if you don't need it, take it out. Because what we should be looking at is reducing risk whenever possible. There's no reason to undertake unnecessary risks. You know, we, we appreciate that in various things, but we think things are benign. Having a catheter of, of, that's not being used is an unnecessary risk in my book. So we should be asking, does this patient need these things? And does the patient need to be in this hospital? I think that should be also on the table, and maybe they should be discharged. Now, we know that it's a, it's a bigger deal to discharge, have the clients come in, and maybe they're not ready. But I think of all the factors that have to be considered, one of them is, it, does this patient need to be being exposed to potential greater risk? Now. It's going to be a balance, and some patients will benefit from being in a hospital on an additional day mm -hmm. for observation, for tracking and response to treatment. Uh, other patients probably can do just as well at home. And I think having the conversation about does this patient need a urinary catheter today, does it need to have an IV catheter today, I th all of those things uh, we should have more conversation about. I guess about for it. you and I, you know, um, does, it need, does the patient need to be in ICU anymore? Can it go towards? Um, so the, the kind of one of the main things I wanted to talk about today was we sort of touched on already that one of the reasons that we care about these infections, um, there is obviously what it does to the patient and the implications all of that has, and there is also the implications it has for our ability to continue to treat infections successfully and the whole you know, push in recent times towards more rational use of antimicrobials and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I wondered if you could summarize both with respect to the use of antimicrobials and in other ways, you know, what, what things can practitioners do realistically to try and kind of minimize the risks of their patients developing healthcare-associated infections, which is quite a big question, but I, I'm hoping that you can break it down to some sort of bulleted key yeah. points. Well, based on the information we have so far, based on what increases the risk of a patient acquiring. There are some simple things, and, and sometimes we don't really believe that simple solutions can make a dent on a big problem. 
one of the things that's shown time and time again, the hand hygiene is by far the most effective. It's the cheapest to employ, simple, but actually not well um, you know, delivered. And if we can make people wash their hands before and after every single patient contact, that actually will go a long way. You know, can we automatically see dropping rates? If you look hard enough, you probably can. Uh, there's, if there's any data to show that it's not worthwhile, you know, I don't think that that's, that's really well known because every attempt to look at does hand washing, can it really change the rates of infection? And that's number one across can the board. Can I ask you two things about that? One is, <clears throat> is all hand washing created equally? And two, does hand washing mean literally go to a sink and wash your hands or are there other things that you could substitute for actually washing at a sink? So is hand washing, does it matter how you wash your hands? And no, I mean, I think you bring up a good point because one of the things that is really unimportant because we can't all say that hand hygiene is important. Any barrier to actually doing it is a problem. So there are not enough sinks in every hospital that everyone can go to it. The recommendation and the evidence would suggest that if the hand is soiled, with there's actually things on it, then you must wash with soap and water. If the hands are not soiled, then you can use alcohol rubs, and those are quite effective. But they must be done before and every patient contact. And actually, people think that wearing a glove, a clean glove, a sterile glove, makes it uh, sort of not needed to wash your hands, and that's not true. You should actually uh, perform hand hygiene before and after donning gloves. Okay. So, and that's the part that gloves actually are no good if you don't wash your hands before and after. Um, and and that, that type of, of change in, in understanding that if you wear gloves, you still have to wash your hands before mm-hmm. and after, doesn't go away. That's the type of change that we need. That's one thing. Yeah. Uh, the other is what I talked about is reducing the number of unnecessary procedures, and that's meaning urinary catheters, IV catheter placement. A uh, third thing would be more rational use of antimicrobials, because one of the things that people may not realize is you should only use antimicrobials if there's actually an infection. Prophylactic antibiotics is really only used perioperatively. And, and it should um, not be continued. It's a huge problem, right? And I think, it's, I think there's a fear that people have. That if they don't give antibiotics to patients that might have an infection, that suddenly all these animals are going to drop dead of overwhelming sepsis or something. And, you know, since I've been in and around here for over a decade now, I mean, some of the, there's lots of patients where we deliberate on a daily basis about is it appropriate to be giving them antibiotics at all. And many patients that we don't use them in, and I often, you know, have, have this conversation with people at CPD and the students and stuff. Is like, how do we convince people that actually all these patients are not going to die of overwhelming bacteremia and sepsis if they don't all get prophylactic antibiotics? I don't. I mean, we're obviously everyone is trying to push on this, but um, any clues, tips, <laughs> what, no. anything? You I know? think it, we we definitely have to change the culture. That the and what I try to emphasize is. If a patient is having a problem, it's not the infection. Uh, I think the infection is it's, it's uncommon for the infection to be the major problem an animal may have. 
And I get asked a lot about should we cover antibiotics. And unless you're really suspicious that the infection is causing the problem, then no. Why do trauma patients require microbials? Why do pancreatitis patients? Those are not infectious agent-related disorders. And I think we need to stop that. Do you, th- do you think some of that stems from a misinterpretation of information and interpreting it to be the result of infection? Yeah. So neutrophilia, pyrexia, or do you think it's kind of, well, so I, there is probably some element of that, right? All neutrophilia equals infection. Well, it doesn't, but people might kind of assume it does or, or think, well, just in case then. Yeah, I think one of the problems is, is behavior um, of, of healthcare professionals in that they want to do something, and that's one of the things that they have experience doing, administering the microbials. Um, the other is the, the it's reinforced because a patient that comes in for lethargy not eating gets an examination, then gets some antimicrobials, and then the owners call back, so it's much better. Mm. Unfortunately, that reinforces that maybe antibiotics made a difference, when in fact it's probably coincidental that antimicrobials have no action that could reverse a disorder like that. And, and, and I think that that's part of what we need to change, that culture that antimicrobials wasn't indicated and probably had nothing to do with the recovery. So I am um, on this subject. So I attended a, a CPD day recently that, that general practitioners came to, and I was kind of invited to just go along. And it was on, you know, evidence-based medicine. And one of the practitioners there was a manager of eight clinics, and he was saying that they got all their vets together, and they basically said, right, from today we're drawing a line in the sand, and we're no longer giving antimicrobials to our neutering procedures when they had been before, and we're no longer giving them to our diarrhea cases. And then everyone went away under these new guidelines. And he said pretty much everyone stopped giving them to the neutering procedures. And we're going to talk about this in a minute as well. But in terms of their follow-up and audit of their cases, they didn't appreciate any kind of increase in infection rate. But everyone carried on giving them to diarrhea patients, and and they had made no ground with that. So it was almost this kind of psychology thing. They're willing to stop in one area, and hopefully the evidence supports that that was okay. But yet they just would not stop giving them to the diarrhea patients. And it was an interesting thing because it's sort of some of this behavioral thing that you're talking about as well. Um, Which kind of brings me on to this thing. So presumably, as well as taking these measures, and I I guess if we summarize the measures, we're saying hand hygiene is the most important thing. It has to be the right kind of hand hygiene done at the right time. Minimizing interventions, um, obviously performing as good asepsis when you're doing procedures as you can, um, and the rational use of antimicrobials, and potentially limiting hospitalization as appropriate. Um, oh, sorry, one thing I forgot to mention is actually, it should be obvious, but um, general hospital cleanliness. Yeah. So, it, although those are not the highest um, risk factor to have an unclean hospital, but that certainly is a contributor to it. And effective cleaning of the facilities is something that needs to be uh, looked at. There are various studies that identify that objects, high-contact objects, could be a source, but they're not high. I mean, for, for a while, everyone was trying to ban keyboards. Yeah. Yes, there are agents on keyboards, but actually that's not the major problem. Yeah. Um, but the high-contact surface where the patient, but mostly where the health caregivers are touching before they touch the patient is important. Um, and so we have to keep that in mind as well, that you can't take your eye off the fact that the cleaner the place is, the less likely there that there will be contaminants and colonized bacteria in there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And in terms of the, the measures that people should, presumably as well as trying to implement change in practice and, and best practice in inverted commas, then you need to implement some kind of monitoring of infection rates, I guess. And is this something that we try and do in the hospital here? And presumably it's something that we would be encouraging practices to do as well? Yeah, I think that, that we do have various um, systems ongoing to try to monitor our effectiveness. So one of the things is in our ICU, we collate any culture result uh, because I want to know what are the bugs that we're dealing with and what is their sensitivity pattern because people bring almost um, their their preconceptions of what it should work mm. against. And, and we need to be not just uh, accepting that that's what the pattern, that's the next antibiotic. And I think we need to make a decision. And that's what a, a responsible sort of infection control committee should do is track what's going on in that hospital and making protocols that addresses that hospital's problem. So that's one thing. Yeah. A measure of how well we're doing with infection, we need to have a process we, we currently are trying to track, and, and that's actually a, a term that I'm going to throw in there. It's called syndromic uh, surveillance. Instead of just focusing on the positive lab results, monitoring things, data that you already have, mm. that could be indicative of a problem. So one of the things that you can track is how many patients are barrier nurse, for example, because the more you do, then you're actually showing that, regardless of the positive cultures, that the risk is increasing. Um, and we could easily have that data, how many patients are getting barrier nurse. You mean the risk is increasing because those patients are in the hospital? Yes. They're bringing reasons to be barrier nurse with them. Well, they're more immunocompromised. So it's a kind of two-way flow, really. Yeah. They're and more susceptible and they're a source. Yeah. yeah. And what well, you mentioned, hospitalization days. So if you can actually collate data about how long do patients in your hospital stay, that will tell you about the risk factor as well. So whether or not you need to increase your vigilance because you are now taking cases that are taking more and more days to recover, that's going to have an impact on risk factors. Things like usage of... Um, Anti-ulcer medication, for example, is another indicator. We usually use them in the sicker patients that are there for a few days. That's been shown. So it's almost finding surrogate markers without having to depend on the lab reporting a positive culture, which is and, more expensive. Um, oh, I forgot what I was going to ask you. Um, in, in the context of barrier nursing, that's what I was going to ask you. <laughs> I know this is a topic that we have discussed a lot. Um, Again, is all barrier nursing created equally? And I know the answer to that is no, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And so what do we mean? What should we really be doing? But also, do we have any proof in inverted commas that the most extreme forms of barrier nursing are actually make any difference to anything? Yeah. Well, one of the things that there, – there are a few things that, that sort of built in. And what difference does barrier nursing make? We hope that people are more careful. Because you mentioned about, like, oh, should we do things, you know, when we do procedures, we have to be conscious of aseptic technique. One of the things that we know that increase the risk is break of protocols. So if someone knows that they should be wearing gloves for a certain procedure um, and there's a lapse and they touch something and they carry on, that's a break in protocols. Mm -hmm. If a patient has barrier nursing sort of... Uh, 
a requirement, then everyone needs to be more cognizant that they can't break aseptic technique. Another thing that does is it increases the disposable equipment. So it does increase costs, but when you have to wear disposable aprons, for example, and you're not allowed to go to any other patient with that apron, it should decrease the cross-contamination of your surfaces. And so what is the minimum people should wear protective clothing and disposable if they're going to be a high contact. We're not talking about if you're going to walk a dog, you need to wear disposable protective clothing. But if you're going to be lifting this dog that has discharge coming out, Mm. then you need to wear disposable um, protective clothing that is disposed after that patient uh, is treated. Gloves must be, and I mentioned that if you don't wash your hands before and after putting the gloves, then it's no good. So I think that there is a purpose of it. You know, we laugh all the time about putting a little sticky tape around the kennel as some sort of force field barrier. And we know that doesn't work that way. But if people, when they see that, act more careful and and take extra precautions, I think it does create um, an improved... a way of managing patients all over the hospital. So if that's the plus side of it, then I guess we always need to think about if we're trying to sell this as an idea or whatever, to think what the downsides are. Oh, cost, absolutely. If you want to invest in proper infection control, it's going to cost a lot more. A lot more disposable gloves, a lot more um, dispensing of alcohol rub. If you can't build more sinks, which that's a really major cost, then there should be uh, dispensers of alcohol rub everywhere. Mm. Because it, people should never say, I don't have access to one. I couldn't do it. Remove the excuses. Another thing that it, it, it makes you know, sense, if you need to do a procedure aseptically and the materials are spread around the hospital, chances are people forget something and skip mm. that step. If you make it everything that they need widely accepted, so they invest it in a cart and they put everything you need to change a catheter in that cart, more, more likely than not, they won't skip any steps. They'll follow protocol and therefore they have better results. So those are the type of things. But the hugest drawback is cost. Your cost on disposable will go up. And um, this is a bit of a trivial point. Well, it's not actually. But with the whole hand washing thing, I know that one of the things that people worry about is dry hands, scaly hands, cracked hands, and if you're washing your hands between touching every single patient, I mean, that can be a very real... And, you know, we, we have various varieties of moisturizing creams and stuff in ICU and so on for that purpose, and obviously the alcohol rubs take away some of that, and some of them are supposed to be good for your hands and all that. But, um, I mean, those are some of the kind of practical things as well. That, And there is obviously increased burden, I suppose, to the staff to have to don that equipment, take that equipment off, etc. And I suppose to a degree it also limits the interaction with the patient, right? You can't just nip into the kennel and give the dog a stroke or whatever because you have to put all this stuff on. So I guess there are those other kinds of maybe more minor considerations, but in the bigger picture I think it is um, – because we, we sometimes say, well, should we just be barrier nursing to the best ability possible a lot of our patients rather than kind of, well, some can have just gloves and some can have the full shebang. And um, I guess that's always a trade-off between pros and cons – what costs it comes financially to the hospital, to the staff, and all those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say about that is we have to be remain practical. Mm. So if the recommendations are too difficult to to follow, they won't get followed, and therefore a a sort of um, protocols have to be devised with what the risks are. So we actually have developed 
guidelines to say, depending on what you're going to do to that patient and, and the risk of whether they have a multi-resistant infection, the precautions are adjusted to that case, balancing risks and practicality. Yeah. So, yes, we could say every patient gets the same level of barrier nursing no matter what. Yeah. It would be too difficult to follow. It won't get followed, and you miss the patients. So if you concentrate on the patients that would most benefit, that's progress. Um, but people have to be aware. And that education of the staff is huge in terms of getting them to buy into the precautions, making them realize that, you know, it takes three seconds to hand rub um, with alcohol gels. That could prevent this patient out of 100 from getting an mm-hmm. infection. I think that's what you need to just ingrain as a normal thing that, you know, I can rush in a room with CPR and the first thing I do is don a disposable apron no matter what because that microsecond I don't think is going to make that huge a difference. Mm-hmm. But it is what you need to do. You have very close patient contact. There, you know, there might be bodily fluids involved, and therefore you need that extra protection. Excellent. So, look, before we finish, um, this is not Twitter-style 140 characters, but if someone came, we, we've touched on all of this already, but I just wanted to wrap it all up together and said, Dr. Chan, why should I care about these infections? What would you say? I think that the thing to remember is patient safety is the number one thing, and to do that, it doesn't take much to reduce the risk. And hand washing, if, if that's one thing you could do, that will probably have the most benefit is hand hygiene. must be part of the culture in every hospital. Fantastic. Um, Dan, thanks so much. We, we've covered a lot today, and, and it's a really important topic. And to be honest, it features in our, day, in our daily life, doesn't it? Every day we're, we're, we're sort of looking at this stuff. Um, I have no doubt the listeners are going to have found this really helpful and informative. And I think we've just finished off with a kind of what you wanted to say in conclusion. Um, so um, I look forward to doing more podcasts with you. I'm not sure what the next topic will be, but I'm sure we'll come up with something. And to the listeners, as always, then do feel free to get in touch um, and provide your feedback. And so you can email me at the usual address, which is schasani at rvc.ac.uk. You can use the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page, and there is a photo album with the podcast in it. And you can tweet us at Royal Vet College using the hashtag SAClinPod. And until next time, then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.